Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. We sat there and he said, you know, we accidentally gave you an HIV test and we got the results back. But because you didn't legally approve the test, I can't legally give you the results until I have your approval. And I knew what he was going to tell me. But I, I thought that if I didn't give him the approval and he didn't tell me, then it wouldn't be real. And so I sat there and I remember there was a clock and I remember looking at the clock and it was ticking and it was silent. And I remember I looked outside the window and there were people walking in the courtyard. And I just remember thinking, I wonder why they're here. I wonder why they came to the hospital. I wonder if their lives are going to be different when they leave. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassengame, and I am your host. Today, we have Chris Tompkins. Chris knew he was gay at age six, but things weren't talked about openly in his home. So he internalized the idea that it should remain a secret, and he grew up ashamed and hypervigilant. At 24, he came out and jumped into an LGBTQ community that used drugs and alcohol to deal with the internalized shame they'd felt in their own childhoods. Chris eventually moved to LA and he spent the next 11 years working at a gay bar in West Hollywood where the alcohol and drugs played an even bigger part of his life. In LA, he began a search for a God that didn't hate him. Chris was deep into his spiritual journey when he found out he was HIV positive and was forced to come out once again into a world full of stigma and old ways of thinking. It was a decisive moment staring at himself in the mirror that he couldn't keep his spiritual self and his drug-using self afloat any longer and made the choice to end his relationship with drugs and alcohol. Today, Chris is a registered associate marriage and family therapist, life coach, TEDx speaker, and author of the best-selling book, Raising LGBTQ Allies, A Parent's Guide to Changing the Messages from the Playground, which aims to create a world where closets don't exist. I love what Chris is doing because he's bringing an intentionality to how he is helping us reduce shame and stigma around the LGBTQ community. The book that he wrote addresses people who want to help their children be allies. And I know that Scott, our producer, and I are in this boat where we want and we believe that we are helping to try to reduce stigma around these topics, but maybe we're not getting it right all the time. Maybe there are things that we're missing. And what Chris has done is given the people who want to be helpful and want to change the conversation in this coming generation a guide to how we can be the most useful, the most helpful, and become the best allies in a world that still holds judgment and shame. I'm extremely grateful for his book and his talk, which illustrates how I can be better in reducing shame and stigma in the LGBTQ community. Without further ado, I give you Chris Tompkins. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. 
Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Chris, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So I wanted to ask you a bit about knowing that you were gay at six. I think you talk about in in your TED Talk, one of the things you said is we're born into this heteronormative culture where it is assumed that you are straight until proven gay or otherwise. And you said, I knew I was gay at six. And I think for a lot of people, they don't understand why it is that they should talk to their their children or bring up any of these topics that are with regard to sexuality or otherwise, if their child, they believe a six-year-old isn't at the place where they would even understand that. I think a lot of that has to do with this idea of being born into a society that assumes that you're straight until proven otherwise. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to know that you're you're gay at six? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's a really good question. And that's one of the questions I've asked a lot. And I think there are a few things to sort of unpack, you know, with that question. And I think one of the things that you know, I, I really am grateful to be having these conversations is because oftentimes when parents, caregivers, adults, when we have, you know, conversations or encourage having open and honest conversations with children at a young age, we sort of put our adult constructs of what those topics are onto children. And so for a lot of adults, we think that we're talking about, for instance, with myself, I knew that I was gay when I was six years old. When people, when I say that, oftentimes is the case where adults hear that from their lens. And so what I really invite people to do and what I did with my book is that I really get on to the level, you know, I really center children's experiences. And I would invite for your listeners, you know, those who are listening is to sort of think back in your own life of when you started to be curious. You know, I have a lot of nieces and nephews. I have a lot of family, young kids in our family. You watch movies. I, I watch various movies and you always see, you know, scenes where there's a little girl and a little boy and there's a crush and there's this sweet picture or scene of the movie that shows this this sort of love kind of romance starting and it's it's very it's normalized and so it feels very and that's what heteronormativity the sort of unconscious or conscious assumption that everyone fits into this sort of male female role and that's where i really would like to invite parents and caregivers to consider is that there are other ways of being and so when i knew that i was gay when i was 6 years old i didn't know necessarily what being gay meant i knew that there was I had this internal sense of, as we all do, discovery. And I started to notice things about myself. And I started to... Children are very you know, big on comparing themselves to others. And so I started to compare how I was against others that were like me on the outside and sort of socialization, you know, certain social cues of what I should do as a little boy. And I started to feel a sort of disconnect. And so for me, that was a real discovery of like, I knew that's the age that I point to that I had that knowing. And a big also, I think, important um, distinguishing to distinguish the difference between sex and sexuality. And so often, again, with adults is we think that we're having conversations about sex. And that's certainly not the case. It's about sexuality, which is every human being has a sexuality, whether it's asexual or sexual, or there are many different ways of being. And that's really what I want to do or hope to do with with parents and caregivers and those who work with youth is to consider that kids are discovering themselves right now in this moment. What's the difference between sex and sexuality? How do you describe that? Yeah, so sex, sex is 
is the act of having sex and sexuality is it's an inner state of being it's 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 how you identify with with who you're attracted to who you have feel like you get the butterflies in your stomach it's more than the sexual organs it's a sort of somatic experience that is heart mind and body connected what was it like growing up in your house with these particular topics? It, it was, I think, unlike I think a lot of families, we didn't talk about it. And so it was sort of just no one was having conversations. I, I remember I had health class when I was in uh, high school. And you're given the sort of heteronormative, you know, boys like this, girls like this. This is how boys develop. This is how girls develop. And so... You know, I talk a lot about heteronormativity and heteronormativity. What I invite people to consider is that it's a sort of, it's like humidity. You can't necessarily see it all the time, but you can feel it. And so for someone who doesn't identify in a heteronormative construct, it's an experience that I feel somatically when I go to different spaces, depending on, you know, whether or not my body is responding to the space. You picked a perfect analogy for me with humidity because I know I'm very sensitive to it. I know the second it's in there. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and it is, it's, it, it's an interesting, and some people are more sensitive to it than others. And, and, uh, some people it causes them to change and other, you know, their, their hair changes or whatever. So you have this whole range of experiences. You know, it's interesting. I have five year old twin boys and I was thinking about how you said that it's something that we assume the assigned gender and straight at birth. And I thought, I mean, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. So to me, I was not introduced to homophobic feelings until I was an adult. But I still, even given that, I did assume that my kids were male based on the fact that they were born male. And I did assume that they were straight until they tell me otherwise. And I was listening to how you talk about these conversations that we should have and, and how we have them and when they're brought up. And kind of putting that, putting my own parenting under that lens of how do I do this? Do I do that? I thought I do do that. I do assume that they're straight. I do assume that they're, they want to be male, but I also follow their cues and I answer their questions. So the, the question they, I get is, can I marry my brother? Which I always laugh. Yeah. <laughs> and I say, if you're 18 and you want to still want to marry your brother, we'll figure something out. But is my assumption, does that contribute? Should I be assuming something different? What are your suggestions and your your philosophy around that idea? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I I think, you know, you bring up a lot of good points. And I think that the fact that you're, you know, I love what you said about following their cues. I think that that's really amazing um, to sort of give kids the space to sort of ask the questions. One of the biggest things I love is that what I say often is that all relationships begin with curiosity. You know, the relationship that we have with kids, it's being curious. It's it's sort of, like you said, following their cues. And, you know, maybe they're asking these questions based off of something they heard or saw. Maybe they're asking the question because of how they're feeling. Maybe it's an indicator of something. Maybe it's not. Um, and I think that, that that is always what I invite people to do really is just to sort of create kind of kind of start with a blank slate that I have an exercise in my book where it's, you know, starting with, the, you know, when you have a child, you know, starting with a blank slate and allowing them to sort of fill it in and being curious about getting to know who they are versus oftentimes with parents and people who have children is that we come from maybe an experience that we felt sort of lack of love or lack of support, or we had an experience in our childhood that we don't want to duplicate with our own children. And so we sort of try to overcompensate or I'm never going to be like that. And so that still 
from a good intention can also sort of get in the way of that blank slate that we want to create for children to allow them to fill it in the way that they want to fill it in. What would that have looked like for you? I think it would have been being curious. I think that sometimes parents, maybe they know something, but they don't want it to be true. And so they sort of avoid it, or maybe they don't feel comfortable. And so they also avoid it. And I think kids are really, they're very intuitive and they pick up on so much of what's said and what's not said. And kids, I think, are also really not great at interpretation. So as much as they are good at intuiting, they sometimes interpret what they're intuiting not accurately. Right, right. They're filling in the blanks. And I'm curious what it looked like for you in your house growing up for it to mean it's not talked about. What did that look like for your childhood? It really wasn't talked about. I think that that's sort of the... It's kind of to me like heteronormativity. Like It's kind of like the default is that we lean into what's the dominant. And so I grew up in an environment that my stepdad was very sort of your classic machismo, Hispanic, boys like sports, boys play sports. But you know, he was a hunter. So we, we would go on family trips where we would go camping and hunting. And I never really liked doing any of those things. But there was never really, well, what, what do you like to do? And there was never any talk about the things that were going on in my family with regard to addiction. You know, I come from a family where my parents divorced when they were very young and my dad and mom shared custody. So I would go stay with my dad on the weekends or the, the summer, just a completely different experience. And then coming to be with my mom's house and there was never any conversation about like, what's it like over there? <laughs> and, you know, my father, struggled with addictions before I was born. And so that was really never addressed or talked about. Mental illness wasn't also uh, addressed or talked about. So for me, I was just interpreting a lot of stuff based off of my own interpretations and what I was trying to intuit from my surroundings. I love my family and my family. My mom was an incredible mother incredible mother. She loved me so much and she loved my she loved kids so much. My mom was amazing with children and she grew up in a family that was very religious. My fam- my mom was raised Catholic. She came from a generation that being gay was attributed with the Catholic Church of priests who abused children and so her perception of of being gay, specifically a gay man, was that it was related to abuse or pathology or you know something like that. And she was an amazing, incredible mother who I love so dearly. And we're very, very close. And so the things that I learned, I, I say that because I learned love. I learned love. And I think that it's important to this conversation that we can learn love also in the spaces that there's a lot of fear. I learned we don't really tell the truth. I learned I come from a family of, like I mentioned, there's a lot of addiction. And so I sort of learned to not trust my feelings because I knew something was going on. It's just that what was being reflected back to me was the opposite or was sort of like encouraging me to to look the other way, which made me not trust my own instincts and my own self. So I also learned not to trust myself. When I was younger, that was where my spirituality was first born. I really do believe because I was introduced to religion at a young age. That was very painful for many years as I sort of came to my own self as far as being gay and coming out to myself. And that journey was very painful because of my religious experience. And 
where I stand now, I'm so grateful because that was when I learned about God and, and higher power and spirituality. And so I was able to sort of come full circle. And so I learned, I guess what I'm saying is that I learned to formulate a deep spiritual connection at a very young age. Did any of that stuff stop you from coming out once you were more into the world and as an adult? Absolutely. I came from a from a background that I, I I believed in hell. Like I believed that I believed that it was a place. I did believe that my sexuality, if I came out as gay, if I lived my life as gay, that that I would go to hell. And so I stayed in the closet. I I did the best that I could to I try to pray the gay away. I had girlfriends. I did all of the things that still didn't take the gay away. <laughs> it was either, you know, choose myself or, you know, live a life that I couldn't see myself living. What brought you to coming out? What caused you to want to come out? Um, I moved to Mexico after I graduated college. And so I moved there. And that was really, for me, I was like away from my family. I was away from really everyone that I, that I knew. I will say that was probably the most painful time because that was where I really, you know, I often say when I was in college, it was really easy for me to blend in. It was really easy for me to blend in in high school. I sort of hid behind heteronormativity. I was really good. I was, I was a chameleon. I could fit into spaces and sort of assess how I'm supposed to fit in based on what I'm perceiving. And so I had girlfriends. I dressed the part. I, I, I used to joke that I could have won an Oscar for the role that I played as a straight person. I was in a fraternity. I, I had a lot of girlfriends. And after college, though, as anyone who's listening knows, is that when you're in college, there is an act. You go walk outside and there are people playing Frisbee or doing activities. It's just really easy to, to be in community in college. After college, you, start to, you have to start to pursue the things that you're interested in. And so that's when I started to get a lot of questions. When are you going to get married? Like that was nails on a chalkboard to me because it just reinforced the belief of they're telling me that who I am or how I feel is wrong. It was just this constant reminder. When I moved to Mexico, I thought I'd stop. Those questions would stop. But when I moved to Mexico, it was, oh, we're going to set you up with... We know someone who we could set you up with. The people I worked with at my job, you know, they were American. And so they would, oh, I have a eligible... My daughter's, you know, da-da-da. So that caused me to sort of withdraw and isolate. And I started to go to... This was like 20 years ago. So back then, they had internet cafes. They're very common. And they're still really common in Mexico. And uh, I go, I would go to the internet cafes. And I would Google how to not be gay or how, how, to, how to change being gay, things like that. What does being gay mean? And I was coming up with all of this really awful information of like what was not, not very helpful. And so I remember... I anonymously emailed, I set up a fake email account and I anonymously emailed my old pastor asking him about a friend that I had who had feelings about men. And his response to me, I'll never forget, he sent me a newsletter, Christian newsletter, and it was a story about a man who was able to successfully become straight. And it talked about this man who was happily married to this woman and they had two beautiful children. And this whole article just really set the scene of, you know, he's happy and how him and his wife get on their knees every night and they pray 
to keep his his desires at bay. And I just was reading this article and I was like, that sounds horrible. That sounds awful. I remember thinking about... Because he talked about... In the article, talked about two kids and one played soccer. And he talked about the husband and wife going to a soccer meeting and in walked a new a, a man who recently moved to the neighborhood. And the man came in late. The man of the article who put his homosexual desires at bay looked up and, and looked at the man. Not necessarily because he was attracted to him, but because he heard the... He came in late for the meeting, but he looked at him and his wife was sitting next to him and she saw him look at him. I wondered, did she think that he was looking at him because he was attracted to him? But her questioning that, I thought that that would be a horrible experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For everyone. For everyone, but especially for, you know, for her as a wife to, you know, she wants to feel loved and safe and supported in the relationship. And so that little glance of a scenario to me was enough to say, I'm never going to be able to have get married. I'm never going to be able to do this. I can't do this. And I remember walking away from the internet cafe, feeling the most despair that I had ever had. And I thought about, you know, suicide and whether or not that was an option if I could, you know, take my own life. And I remember I walked home and I used to have this prayer book called God's Promises. You can look in the front of the book and it would say things like, financial, if you had fears about financial concerns, and then it had it had scriptures in the Bible, there was a section about sexual, unhealthy sexual thoughts or something like that. And I remember I would always read, that was the section I would read the most, because I thought I could pray the gay away still. And so I remember I walked home, that book used to sit on my desk, on my nightstand. And I took that book, God's Promises, and I put it in the drawer and I shut the drawer and I realized like, I can't read that anymore. And like out of the movies... I don't know if it was the next few days, or the next week. I went to this area that had like a subway and just, you know, like a strip mall. Across the street, there was a Benavides, which a Benavides in Mexico is like a 7-Eleven, Circle K. And I walked into the Benavides to get a drink and this guy walked out. And I remember the way he looked at me, it was the middle of the day, like on a Tuesday. And the way he looked at me felt familiar. Like he, lo- he, he looked at me like he knew me, like I seemed familiar to him. As I walked up to the register, I could see him in his car parked out and he was pretending to read something, but he was like looking at me. And again, it was the middle of the day on a Tuesday, which to me, I had always assumed, you know, being gay was like secret and, and you, you meet in the dark, you know, the, like at night or at a bar, you know, not out in public. I was walking to my car and I was like, I don't have anything to lose. Like I remember I had butterflies in my stomach and my palms like were, I was like, why am I like my heart was racing? I'm like, what am I, am I having? Like, what is happening? And I was like, I have nothing to lose. This feeling feels really real. Like right now, I just got chills. Like I felt so connected to my body. And I put my sandwich in my car and I walked back to his car and he rolled down his window. And and I said in like horrible Spanish, I was like, hola, nada más quería decir hola, which means I just wanted to say hi. And he was like, oh, you're you're not from here. And he spoke English. And so we started talking and he asked for my number, but I didn't feel comfortable giving him my number because I live with the family. And uh, I took his number and I waited a few days. And I remember I got back to work that day after meeting him and I went to my cubicle at my <laughs> at the work and I just started writing a poem. And I remember I felt so free and just like... I mean, I didn't write poetry, but I just wrote. I just remember writing how I felt and what I was like. And I wanted to stand on a mountaintop and like share how I felt. That's what prompted me to come out was that I fell in love. 
What made you turn to drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism now that you were out and finally able to live in your skin? What was the the need that drugs and alcohol were meeting that wasn't being met elsewhere? So for me, I came out of the closet. I was doing all this LGBTQ advocacy work. But what I wasn't really fully aware of was the internalized homophobia that I had developed as a result of being socialized in a dominant culture that those were like splinters in my skin. And I couldn't necessarily really see them. But if I went to go pick something up, it would hurt and I would feel it. And so I started to do a lot of events that ironically, with the organization that I was working for, I was responsible for the new member recruitment events. And the new member recruitment events, we had to recruit... Our target demographic was gay men 25 to 35 years old. And so the events always were held at bars. And I remember I found a a venue in Atlanta. It was a new market for us. And I found a a venue that was not a bar. And it was perfect. It fit all the like criteria of what we look for. And I remember I I sent the proposal in to get approved. And the president called me at the time into his office and said, you can't have this event at a a non-bar. He said, the bar is for gays, but the church is for straights. And at the time, I didn't really realize what that fully meant. And I think that in my experience, what I understood and now looking back is that, you know, the bar for a lot of members of the LGBTQ community was a space to go to, to connect, to gather. What I've also learned is that shame combined with substances is a recipe for addiction, for, you know, really awful, awful things. And not only shame, but trauma, unhealed trauma. And I used to look a lot at my own experience through the lens of shame, but it wasn't until I really started to do my own work, you know, when I, when I stopped using drugs and alcohol of really uncovering a lot of the trauma of what it was like to grow up disconnected from myself. How did you end up finding out that you were HIV positive? I had something that I thought was an infection on my body that was in a non like sexual, place. And so I went to the doctor to have it checked out. I thought it was, you know, something. And so they asked me if I wanted to do, they'd draw my blood. They took my blood. The man who was taking my blood asked me if I wanted to get an HIV test. And I was like, no, it seemed so scary to me at the time. And I remember this man, I write about this in my book. And I said that I do believe that there are earth angels, people who are on this planet who really are guiding us and helping us. And he was really kind of pressuring me like, you know, maybe maybe an HIV test is you know just something to know, and and I was like, no, I'm 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 good. And legally, you have to approve that you're going to be given an HIV test, or they're going to draw your blood and test it for HIV. Legally, they have to get your approval. And I declined. And so I go back to my life. They treated the infection that I had, and I got a call from the nurse the next week, and she was very sweet. And she said, Oh, you know, we just would like you to come in to go over your results from the test. And um, it's just a standard operating procedure that we have you come in in person because we can't, you know, do it over the phone. And so I didn't think anything of it. She made it seem very like harmless. And so I, I remember driving to the clinic that I had went to, which was away. It was like the further one away because I didn't want anyone to know like where I was going. I'm a huge fan of the show Sex and the City. There was a scene where Samantha had gone in to get an HIV test. And her friends were like, No, you're fine. As long as you're not taken into the room at the end of the hallway, you're, you're okay. And so fast forward, she goes to get her results. And the nurse is escorting her to the room at the end of the hallway. And she faints. Samantha faints in that episode. 
And so I remember I got to the to the clinic and they called my name. It was like a scene out of the out of the show. I was being taken to the room, the last room at the end of the hallway. And I remember I got into the room. It was just me and a, a, another person, a young man. He we sat there and he said, you know, we accidentally gave you an HIV test and we got the results back. But because you didn't legally approve the test, I can't legally give you the results until I have your approval. And I knew what he was going to tell me. But I I thought that if I didn't give him the approval and he didn't tell me, then it would be real. And so I sat there and I remember there was a clock and I remember looking at the clock and it was ticking and it was silent. And I remember I looked outside the window and there were people walking in the courtyard. And I just remember thinking, I wonder why they're here. I wonder why they came to the hospital. I wonder if their lives are going to be different when they leave. I felt like I was in the space that existed before I got there. He said, Chris, this is serious. We need for you. We need for you to let us know that it's okay to tell you really how, how bad this is. And so I said, okay. And so he said, you tested for HIV and your blood, your T cell count is so low that you're on the cusp of having full blown AIDS. And so we need for you to start treatment immediately. And I just, I remember I sort of kind of, I think I disassociated. I think I just, I sort of became robotic and was like, okay. And so that's, that's pretty much how I was diagnosed a year after I moved to Los Angeles. And so in 2009, and so pretty much from 2009 until 2000 and maybe 12, I didn't tell anyone. The only person that knew was, was my doctor who would, I would go and see every three months for checkups. So I carried that sort of secret on my own. And this is why I think it's so important, especially why I want to share my story is that to take away the shame, because I think that, you know, oftentimes a lot of gay men who have sex, and who get HIV, there's this sort of, I caused it or sort of the shame of I engaged in an activity that, that caused me to get HIV. Therefore, the activity that I engaged in is, is bad or wrong. It's connected to sort of that homophobic heteronormative, bi- those biases that we have, the stigma that we have. You know, heterosexual people engage in sexual activity, have underprotected sex and, and they get an STD and it's just part of the like, oh, and I think that that's really why I think that taking away the shame and stigma related to HIV, especially in the, in the, with gay men, because it still very much exists. Did you know other people who had HIV and how treatable is it at this, these days? Yeah. So th- this was back in 2009 when I was diagnosed um, HIV positive. And that's been a long time. And so there have been a lot of changes and there's still a lot of the stigma associated with it, which means that people are still contracting HIV. That was one of the reasons that I wanted to share in my book. I remember you know, when I was writing my book, I, I was contemplating whether or not I really... How far I shared my story. You know, It's a parenting book. I didn't want parents to feel like this wasn't in the same conversation and, and make it about like, to your point at the very beginning of our conversation, make it about sex or, you know, and so I really wanted to share my story from an intentional place of these are the types of experiences that happen when we don't talk about, we're keeping sort of things in the shame box. When I first told my family, 
they were really apprehensive about me wanting to tell anyone else. They wanted to keep it a secret. And one of the things I remember, my mom, who is amazing and loves me so much, you know, she said that her concern if I shared it with my family, my extended family, was that because I have a large family and they have a lot of kids and you know, we're all really close and we do the holidays together. And my mom was concerned that that my cousins wouldn't want me to hold their babies. And I remember when she said that to me, I felt like my body's dangerous. And so I think that that's something that is related to the sort of stigma and shame that a lot of members of of the LGBTQ community experience. I would imagine that, you know, this is your second coming out, right? Like you came out twice. And I, I hate to put it that way because I don't want to compare being gay to having HIV, but it's it's the second time that you've had to tell people something about yourself or chosen to tell people something about yourself that you yourself felt uncomfortable with for a certain period of time. Are you able to compare those two experiences at all? Or or is that it does that stigmatize them? I think that coming out is a lifelong process. And I've come out in more than two ways. I've come out I remember spiritually coming out. That was a big process for me to sort of redevelop a relationship with my version of a higher power, sort of seeking a, a connection with, with the divine in a way that is loving and compassionate. And then coming out of the closet in a community that has been largely persecuted from the from religion or church, the church. And so, to, so when I started to come out spiritually, that was a big thing. You know, people kind of made fun of me, like where I worked, the friends that I had, like I, I, I enjoyed going to spiritual lectures and things. And so me coming out spiritually was a whole whole coming out process, which isn't really connected to shame. It's more of like, <laughs> how are people going to relate to me? You know, and I also came out sober, you know, I came out because for me, my journey to sobriety, I didn't I didn't get sober in AA. And that's something that I think when I talk to people about is is sort of how what my journey to sobriety looked like. My journey of sobriety, it was really important for me to come to terms with it myself. I'm making that decision. I don't want to tell anyone else because I don't want them to influence my decision. And then once I got a little bit more comfortable with my sobriety, then I would tell close friends and family, especially because where I worked and the community that I was a part of, drinking, going out, drugs, like that was that was just part and parcel to especially living in Los Angeles, like it's just it's it's very normalized. And so I didn't want to again, I wasn't strong enough in my own. Then once I got more strength and recovery and I started to to really feel so grateful and I wanted to share it and I wanted to tell people about it and let them know that they can also there are many different ways of giving up drugs and alcohol. As a gay man, does it mean that you have to enjoy going to the bar and getting drunk and using drugs just to sort of feel like you need to fit in or to be liked? There are other ways of of being gay. What are some of the top three things that you tell parents that they can do to support their children in feeling a sense of safety around whoever they choose to be? I guess for me, it's being curious about who they are and learning about who they are, allowing them to show you who they are. In, in addition to curiosity, what that looks practically is asking questions. Be willing to have open and honest conversations. 
Because I always think that if children are asking questions, they're old enough to understand the answer. Yeah. One of my sons asked me the other day, he pointed to a cigarette, said, what is that? Someone smoking. I told him what it was in the best language I could use. He said, have you ever done that? I said, yes, I have. And it's not a good, I didn't, it wasn't a good decision because it hurts my body and blah, blah, blah. And he said, and I said, I made lots of bad decisions. And he goes, what other bad decisions did you make <laughs> when you were younger? And I just looked at him like, oh, I said, um, I'd like to answer that question honestly for you, but I, I don't feel comfortable doing it today. Can we do it another time? And he goes, sure. You're right. It's like getting curious and answering the only the question you're asked. They just want a quick answer. They don't want like the whole explanation. Typically, I think so often as parents, we're thinking, like you said, from the perspective of the adult, with all the all the things flying around that we're worried about or thinking about or want to add color to. And really, the, our kids just want the question they ask to be answered. And a lot of the time, when you just answer that basic question. It's really simple. And then they move on and they want to ask you about, you know, the dump truck outside or whatever it is, (laughs) you know, and and we were the ones, we're the ones overcomplicating it. I had this friend who's, I have twin boys. She has twin boys. One of the boys, they grew up together. One of the boys always wanted to be a girl. I mean, from little, like, and eventually the parents went with it and they said, look, we're going to let him live as her. And I thought, I, I, you know, I was talking to the mom. I said, I support you. I've watched this journey. I'm going to tell the boys, my boys, and, you know, we'll see how it goes. I don't know what they're going to say. They couldn't have cared less. I said, you know, so-and-so is now... The name worked either way. So-and-so is is now a girl and and uh, we're going to just respect her as a girl or something like that. And they were like, okay, I'm thinking this is going to be so complicated that I'm going to have to go through like anatomy questions that we're going to have to this whole thing. It has never come up. Not once. It was the adults that struggled, not the kids. And it, I, I got to watch that firsthand, which was so educational for me of, wow, we add so much complication into this stuff, but we do it, we do it in the name of the kids. Like it isn't the kids, it's us. And the kids are totally fine. What made you want to write your book, which obviously ended up being in the parenting section of the book? Yeah, yeah. which I'm so grateful that it was because originally they were going to put it in the LGBTQ section and I didn't want it to be in the LGBTQ section. And I remember there was an exercise that before I wrote my book, I was researching like, how do you write a book? Like, how do you write a book proposal? What kind of books are there? Like I was on that, that sort of journey. And I remember... I took a course, a woman um, had a course of how to write a book proposal. And one of the exercises that she wanted us to go into a bookstore and walk up and down the aisles and sort of feel of where you'd want your book to be. It was a really cool exercise because up until that point, I thought that it would be in the LGBTQ section. Through that exercise, I realized like, no, my I want my book to be in the parenting section because this is who, when they go into the bookstore, that's who they're going to be. That's the section they're going to go to. They're not going to go to the LGBTQ section unless maybe they have a child who is LGBTQ. But my book is very much, it's raising LGBTQ allies. And so it's for parents who don't necessarily have an LGBTQ child. And the journey really was, the impetus of that book was really, the question that my six-year-old nephew asked me at a family function, which I go to my mom's and she had all my family. And he asked me if the woman that was sitting next to me, who was a childhood friend, if she was my girlfriend. And he asked it and you know, he's six years old. He was running in the, the living room playing with all the other kids, had the thought, ran over. His version of whispering at the time was talking out loud. So he, he asked the question, all the adults 
I could see in their faces like a, and everyone laughed. It was uncomfortable. And then he, I said no. And then he ran off and started playing again to your point. Like it wasn't like he wanted me to sit (laughs) down and explain to him. For me though, what, what's really interesting about children's questions is that I always look at what's behind the question. And so what is their thought? Like what is going on in their, their mind and what's developing that they're, asking that specific question. You know, sometimes it's that they heard something in school or saw something on the television or whatever. And so for me, that question later that night, I started to think about, and I realized at first it was like an innocent question. That's how people responded to it. But then I started to think, wait, why did he ask me that question? Oh, he doesn't know I'm gay. Wait, why doesn't he know I'm gay? I thought like I've been out his whole life and my, I have other nieces and nephews. And I just assumed like they knew I, I haven't ever brought anyone home. So I, I, I haven't introduced, you know, a partner, but I just kind of thought that that would have been something that they knew. And then when I realized like, oh, my sister, they haven't had that conversation. Wait, why? Well, she must think that there's something off limits about, you know, talking to their kids. The journey of writing my book started with my nephew's question. And I remember I went home and I started to do all this research about... Because I started to think, well, there are kids in our family. I have a big family and there are kids right now who are LGBTQ. And if no one's really considering that or talking about it, they're perpetuating what I learned, what we talked about at the beginning of what I learned in my childhood. And I wanted to prevent that. I wanted to prevent some of the experiences that I had as a result of carrying shame and trauma and being bullied. And so I wrote a letter to my family. And that letter ended up getting published on the Huffington Post as an article. And then I was like, I felt like I found this this serum that could like help, you know, cure something. That's how excited I was. The the hero's journey piece is I got the call and I I answered the call. And and so I started giving workshops and presentations. And then I was teaching and I was working at a bar, a really large bar here in West Hollywood. And the experience of my being gay and my journey of sobriety, working at a bar, seeing a lot of my regulars who were alcoholics and who lived through the AIDS epidemic and carried trauma in their bodies. And also seeing the stories of the younger LGBTQ generation, not hearing the stories of their elders as a, as a community because of this, this horrible time that was related to you know shame and judgment. And there was a whole generation, a whole history period that was sort of like bypassed. Also with my experience of working with young people and, and teaching social emotional learning and in the classrooms that I teach, a lot of the classes were about beliefs and uncovering like what, what do you believe about school? What do you believe about life? What do you believe about money? What do you believe about being a boy? What do you believe about being a girl? Even though I was generations older than them, I was hearing the same things that I learned as a child about what it meant to be a boy, about what it meant to be a girl. And that's where I sort of messages from the playground, I realized is that no matter who we are, where we come from, we all play on the same playground. We all pick up these societal messages that contribute to our identities and how we feel about ourselves. And that was the impetus really of pulling all of those things together for my, my parenting book. I love it. I love it. And I, some of this stuff is helpful. Like, how do we approach that? How do we become an ally? Because I do think that the teaching people who want to be allies, how to become allies, how to raise, you know, children in this day and age, I need to 
do a good job. I bet that's my duty on the planet, or at least my what I feel is my social responsibility. And I'm using the best information I have. And so when people come out and say, this is how you can be an ally, this is what you can teach your kids in order to be better fathers, husbands, partners, whatever it is, that's helpful. And I think what happened with a lot of generations prior is that they literally just were recycling what the previous generation told them, adding their own twist to it and throwing it back down, adding their own twist to it, throwing it back down. It wasn't, you know, malicious intent, even on the stuff that was pretty heinous. I think it was really just the stuff we ingested and passed down. You know, what you're talking about is intentionality. How can we be intentional about what we say, about the words we use, about, you know, all the different things. And if we use intentionality, then no matter what we're doing, we're going to do a better job. Even if it's not a great job, we'll do a better job. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, beautifully said. And I think that in addition to intentionality, that's what I meant when I said that my book is very much, although it's parenting, it's very much a spiritual book in the sense of, it's a mindful practice. It's, you know, one of the things that in the mental health world, you know, prevention is a much more effective form of treatment. And so that's really sort of the one of the intentions of the book is to prevent versus having to treat. You know, my life, I have a strong spiritual practice in the sense of, you know, I have to meditate, I have to pray, I have to do it daily, you know, I have to get up an hour earlier than I would so I can get my practice in because otherwise my day, something can happen. I feel thrown off. It, it just, I, the thoughts in my head, the committee is loud. I sort of have to do that in order to maintain a sort of sense of groundedness and intentionality. And I feel like that's the same way for me of what I mean by, you know, we can only take others as far as we've gone ourselves. And so especially when it comes to me as an uncle, when I go home to visit my nieces and nephews, like how am I showing up? How am I being? I mean, this book also, as much as it is a parenting book, it's very much a book for members of the LGBTQ community themselves. For me as a gay man, it made me realize like, wow, I'm really contributing to sort of the heteronormativity because it's really easy for me to live here in West Hollywood and go to the grocery store and kind of sort of not ever have to think about whether if I held, you know, um, a partner's hand, if that would look, be looked at oddly. Whereas when I go to visit my family, I'm a little bit more, as we all probably do when our families of origin, we sort of kind of, our bodies kind of sort of react mm-hmm. in, in our, in our ways that yeah. we did. I sort of find myself, my voice inflection kind of changes. Because those were the things that I had to do in order to hide my identity. For me, this book is also... It's an invitation for intentionality. It's an invitation for mindfulness. I like to think of this as like a a dance, you know, of personal development. We do the work ourselves as parents. And then we get to share that with our our kids. We get to take all of our triggers and the things that, that we're processing. And if we really want to prevent and help a new generation, then we do the work ourselves and share. Do the work ourselves and share. Yep. Yep. Each generation is definitely a reflection on how much work their parents did. That's yeah, pretty sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what is the name of the book and where can people find it? It's called Raising LGBTQ Allies, A Parent's Guide to Changing the Messages from the Playground. And it's wherever books are sold. My publisher... Roman and Littlefield, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. If you support independent bookstores, check out your local independent bookstore in your community. And it's it's available 
on audio as well as as well as hardcover. Awesome. That's fantastic. And can yeah. people, is there somewhere you do you have social or anywhere people can get a hold of you? Yeah, yeah. So my website is a roadtriptolove.com, all one word. And my social Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, a road trip to love. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you incredible. for having me. Yeah. It was thank incredible. You. Thank yeah, you. Thank I really you. appreciate it. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. Well, that was incredible. There's a lot to unpack in there, especially for us parents raising the next gen. There often is intentionality that gets missed in so many different areas where it's like, you know, I consider myself very open and accepting and all that. But it's like so many things are just overlooked that shouldn't be. And it, and uh, I'm I'm thankful for these opportunities where someone can like point my attention back. If I'm saying certain things or I'm saying I believe certain things, then there needs to be some intentionality into the way that I talk about these kinds of things and how I interact with my kids and bring these, these subjects up with them. I think the piece of what kids are absorbing and how they fill in the blank spots. And if we leave too many blank spots, we're giving them the opportunity to fill them in with things we may not have meant, wanted, like, etc. There's so much there. And it was interesting. You know, I'm sure we were both thinking about like, have we talked about it? I don't know. You know, I don't think there's any perfect right answer for every kid. It's different for every kid. But to be intentional about how we are talking about some of these issues. I thought it was such an interesting point where part of the idea around this particular conversation is sometimes people's inability to separate sex and sexuality, which I thought was an interesting thing. Because I, I imagine that that is at the root of a lot of people's discomfort maybe around the topic. Even those who are very comfortable with it, maybe their reluctance to bring it up is because part of their definition has to, has to specifically be about the sex part of it. And so they're like, oh, by opening this door, then I am opening the door to lots of sex conversations that I want to have. So I thought that was an interesting point he made just about separating the two and just talking about one is about like feelings and who you're attracted to and who gives you butterflies and whatever. And one is like an act. Go on, what you got? I see the skepticism written all over your face. Stop. I am, I <laughs> am unable. I need to work on my puppet. Okay, here's my... <laughs> this is why I always tell people like, I'm not capable of inauthenticity, not because I don't want to be, but because like my face doesn't fucking cooperate. <laughs> I think that, okay. So if you were to say how someone makes you feel, right? My best friend in the whole world and my sisters, like my family, they feel like home to me. Like when I'm like, they feel literally like that's what home feels like. I don't know if you could describe home, right? But my husband also feels like that too. But there's the sexuality piece. Like I don't feel like that towards my best friend. Whereas I do have that with my husband sexuality is not friendship, right? So we're talking about a drive. And so therefore it is connected to sex. Like it can't, they're not the same thing, but they can't be unlinked. Here's where I'll challenge you right back. Do okay? it, do it, do it, do it, do it. So like, okay, so now describe how you choose somebody you marry. Well, I look at uh, job prospects. <laughs> I look at IRS. Credit ratings. Credit ratings. I mean... Let's say the feelings. Yeah. Can we detach the money from it? <laughs> You said Mary, not like you hook up with it. Okay? I might be the wrong person to ask. <laughs> I just, as it's, you described. I mean, to a kid, to a kid, right? Like, obviously, you talking to me is different. Oh, to I'm a saying, kid. To a oh, kid. To, yeah, oh, okay, to a kid. Okay. 
to a uh, kid. So let oh, me okay. let me yeah, let yeah, me yeah. say the question again. I'll say the question again. Yeah, so yeah. to a kid, how do you describe the feelings of wanting to marry someone? You love them. You're attracted to them. You want to share your life, share and build a life with them. You trust them. What does attracted mean? It's related to sexual attraction. What's sexual attraction? Sexual attraction is a feeling that creates physiological changes in your body. What's physiological changes in my body? I'm six years old, Ashley. Well, this is why... (laughs) Did I told you I identify as overwhelming? Okay, so... (laughs) (laughs) They give you boners. Although that can't count because my kids literally that they get a boner from a piece of blank wood. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think it's, I understand potentially in a later conversation, the sex part has to be a part of it. But I think explaining it to a kid when you're trying to explain feelings, I don't know that it's even helpful to like try to parse those things out. Like, I think it's... I agree with you. you I I just thought you meant that I just think they're linked. Of course they are. In yeah. in I'm saying that I think that you can explain someone being attracted to somebody of the same gender oh, without yeah. without having to, oh, to do the 100%. sex part. Yeah. Totally. Right? Yeah. I don't know that this book is going to find its way into the hands of uh, certain the pray, parents. The pray the, the gay away. Yeah. But to his point in the playground setup, like if you and I invest in and how do we have those conversations now and there are enough other people on the playground that are saying something different, then yeah, they might not get it from home, but... The societal conversational change, yeah. I think it was interesting part of this conversation today where we talked about just kind of how place can have such an influence on, you know, what thinking is like and everything. And um, recently I, I read that by law, you must turn on your headlights when it's raining in Sweden. But how am I supposed to know that it's raining in Sweden? You know? Oh my God. <laughs> We're at the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> They're not, you know, tough out on these streets. I feel like <laughs> this is a good one. Okay, here we go. Oh, you get to do it this week? Is that what we're okay, trying to say? No, go I, on, go on. Uh, so you got it. You have to pretend to be me, obviously, in this scenario too. Okay, is this good? <laughs> okay, you nailed it. You got to pinch your nose. You're not pinching your nose enough. Oh, okay, so <laughs> here's my dad joke. Ready? <laughs> I thought the dryer was shrinking my clothes. Turns out it was the refrigerator all along. <laughs> I don't even get that. I don't even I don't even get that. I don't even get that. That's stupid. I don't even get that. What does that mean? Why would I put my clothes in the refrigerator? It means you eat too much and you got fat. (laughs) Oh God. Now I get it. Oh God. So uh well yeah, I love the episode. Ashley, anything that you want to leave the people with? I hope this episode was helpful to you and I challenge you to work on your intentionality with regard to inclusive words this week. I am going to try as well. All right, we'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE 
for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life. <laughs>